What a great opportunity we have this morning to open the Bible together. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to our study of Luke's Gospel. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I was thinking about this as we were singing how wonderful it is to be given the privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to God's people each and every week, and the great comfort it is in knowing that I don't have to figure out what to teach you. That God does that. God leads us in that direction as we walk through what He has given us, and the other beautiful reality is I don't have to impress it upon your heart. God does that too. And so I can prepare what God has taught me throughout the week as I've looked at the passage and think through it and say what what uh, has the explanation of a text, and the Holy Spirit takes that and massages it into each and every individual heart as He sees fit. That is a great comfort. Great comfort. Luke chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. Let's just begin with a word of prayer. Father, prayer is something that You have given us as a privilege to come to You and we, we pray to you because we declare our dependence upon you. We know that we need you in every way, not simply as some kind of celestial fire insurance for our salvation. For sure, we need to have salvation in Christ or we have no hope in glory. And yet here we are this day, this side of heaven, knowing you as our God and as our Father. And we are still dependent upon you for understanding that you would take your word, move upon us and put it, uh, shaping it into our hearts and, and exposing those thoughts and intentions of the heart where your word penetrates and, and causes us to, to have that conviction and that, and that uh, confession before you that Areas of sinfulness and areas where we have been weak, we can see ourselves as we stand before you in a right way. And so we ask you this morning to use your word to impress upon us how we ought to see you and how we ought to know you and how we ought to live for you. Use it in those ways that you see fit for us, challenge us and shape us all to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2 this morning, and we are returning to the eyewitness testimony of those who were there during the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are focusing our attention specifically on verses 21 through 40 as Luke is laying out corroborating testimony from those who were actually at the birth of Jesus and those who saw him in the short days that followed his birth. And all of this testimony is just another example to us of the grace of God, that God is, in fact, a God of grace. And when I say us, I mean, in one sense, all of humanity at large. God is a grace to all of humanity, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So God in His graciousness allows plants to grow and food to grow and all of the things necessary and needful for life on this earth. He gives man breath and He gives them life, even those that reject Him. And so, What we see here is a testimony of God's grace to all of humanity, but it is even more so a testament to His grace of those who have placed their faith upon Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because Luke has already declared to us back in chapter 1 that this has all been written so that we will know the exact truth of what we have been taught. Some of us have grown up in the Christian community. I say it that way because some of us grew up in homes whereby our parents were Christians already. We grew up in the Christian community all our lives, and yet here is God, by His graciousness, giving us an entire gospel of the life of Jesus Christ so that we would know the exact truth about what we've been taught. 
so that we would be able to take all of it, the whole, the whole package of the things that we have been taught, and file it through what Luke tells us to determine the exact truth. Take all of those things that were fanciful, all of those things that were maybe elaborations and even sometimes made up things about Jesus, filter all of that stuff that we have in our mind through the Scriptures so that we might know the exact truth. And so when we think about God, when we think about the very nature of God, we know that God is absolutely perfect. That all that He says is absolutely true. That God has declared in history... In the history that has gone by, he has declared through the prophets that he would send a son. It would be his son, his only son, and that son would crush the serpent's head, the demon of old, the Satan himself, the one who is the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2 says. He would crush the serpent's head and save his people from their sins. That alone, just that truth alone from God ought to be enough for us to just simply believe it. Don't brush it aside as humanity or especially even in the minds of evangelicals. We shouldn't just brush that aside. That should be enough for us to just go, okay, if God said it, that's it. We must believe it. We are commanded to believe it and thereby live according to it. To take it at face value knowing that God cannot lie. And therefore, whatever God says in His Word is in fact the exact truth. And yet, here we are. God is giving us, by His grace, a gospel in order that we might know that we have the exact truth. Why? Because the sinful heart is not so easily deterred from sinning. The sinful heart of mankind continually demands from God, prove it to me. The creature says to the Creator, prove who you are to me. Show me the verifiable facts in my own eyes. And when I see them with my own eyes, then I'll believe. The sinful heart thinks that seeing will produce believing. While God need not acquiesce to our sinful doubt, God graciously does. Albeit, He doesn't do that all the time. And so we have here in Luke, through the moving of the Holy Spirit upon Luke himself, cooperating testimony about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we know that these witnesses that Luke writes about here are trustworthy witnesses because they are righteous people. They are people who are righteous. Remember, when we were here, when we hear of someone being righteous, when you make that statement and when you read about that in the Scriptures, it always means that it is a declaration made about them from God. It is not something in reference to what they do, per se. It is a declaration from God, meaning that each one of these that we are reading about in Luke's testimony have been declared righteous by God because they believed what God said concerning His coming Messiah. And because they were righteous, they were meticulous about obeying what God had commanded. Last Lord's Day, we looked at Mary and Joseph and their testimony. It's recorded for us there in verses 21 to 24. And all of it proved that they believed in their Son for their own salvation. They believed in the coming Messiah, and they believed that their Son was in fact that reality. They had believed what God had declared about Him from the prophets, and what the prophets had said. And Mary, certainly when she went to see her own relative Elizabeth and the testimony that Elizabeth gave about John the Baptist and that son which was going to prepare the way, and as they recounted with one another what the angel had said to Mary, surely Mary understood 
that this was her salvation. They had believed God. They believed what God had promised. They believed what God had said. And God had declared them righteous. They had entrusted themselves to God. Before the angel had been dispatched by God to to give the message to Zacharias and to Elizabeth himself or herself, they had believed what God had said already. And so, after the birth of this firstborn son, Joseph and Mary meticulously carry out obedience to the law of God. They follow what God had commanded to a T, both of them, both for themselves and for this child. They were simply obeying God's commands. This is the characteristic of a righteous person. This is the reality of those who truly know Jesus Christ. Those who know Jesus Christ desire and strive at obeying Jesus Christ. They were obeying the commands of God. They they weren't fully understanding all of the the fulfilling of the words that Jesus himself even would declare to the Pharisees in his ministry, that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the whole law. They, They didn't understand all of that in their own mind as they were fulfilling what God had commanded them. We saw last time that Jesus was, because of that, therefore circumcised. He he was brought under the covenant to be identified with the covenant people of Israel in a physical sense, just as it was declared to Abraham back in Genesis. They were doing what the law said. They were carrying out the law. And yet God is at work in the whole situation as they are obeying God as righteous people to fulfill what God had said and what God had promised and what Jesus would then declare even in his ministry that he came to fulfill the whole law. You remember last time we were together, I said that circumcision was a sign, a sign to show the complete pollution of sin in the natural man. It was a symbol of the covenant with God by way of Abraham, but also a a sign to show that, that sin permeated every part of a man, and it was passed on from generation to generation through the production of children. That sin came about through that relationship between a man and a woman. And so in a similar way, Sin needed to be cut away out of the heart by faith in Jesus Christ, just as circumcision symbolized in a physical way. And so while Jesus was sinless, while certainly he didn't need to to be reminded of the sin in his own heart, he had no sin, but he was fulfilling the whole law of God. And so uh, Mary and Joseph, after they fulfilled all of the law for Jesus and for themselves, Luke says they presented him to the Lord. They presented him to the Lord. Why would they do this? Why would they present him to the Lord? Because that's what God had commanded. That's what God had commanded through Moses to do with all the people of Israel, all the firstborn males of Israel. It didn't really matter whether it was a... uh, an animal, or whether it was a child. Every firstborn who was not a Levite in the human sense was to be dedicated to the Lord. The Levites were the priests. Aaronic priest line was in the Levitic line, and then every other Levite did the details around the temple. They had no inheritance of land. Their part of the inheritance came by means of the people when they made offerings to The priest, the priest was to keep some of that for themselves. So every firstborn that was not a Levite was dedicated to the Lord. And the family of that newborn child was required to pay a redemption tax, a redemption price, a temple tax, actually. The redemption price was five shekels, five shekels. We're not going to go back in the Old Testament to see that, but you can go back to Exodus chapter 13, verse 11 through 16, to see that law given to Moses. 
and then read further about it in Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 to 20. But this is why Mary and Joseph came to the temple. Mary and Joseph come to pay the temple tax for Jesus as was required by the law. But to pay the temple tax, they didn't have to bring Jesus with them. You didn't have to have the child with you in order to do that. You just had to go to the temple and pay that redemption price. So they, they could have left him with friends around the area and people who they knew in the area, but they brought him. In the last Lord's Day, I mentioned that I believe that they did that partly to fulfill what God had said to the third witness in this text. That is a man named Simeon. Notice what Luke writes, beginning in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. We can stop right there for now. Here we are introduced to a man named Simeon. Not necessarily all that common of a name. He's one of four others that we know of, at least in Scripture, named Simeon. This was obviously a Simeon who was a godly man. He was a man of God. He was at the temple worshiping God, which was his regular activity. And he's there on the day that Mary and Joseph were bringing their temple tax. They were bringing their redemption price for their son who was born to them. And Simeon happens to be there. And all we know about him is his name, Simeon, and that he is righteous and devout, and that he has been looking for the consolation of Israel. That's what Luke tells us. That's all we know about Simeon. That's all we're told. And at this time in Israel, the history of Israel, there are not many who could be described with these kinds of terms. There's not a whole lot of people within the whole nation who could be described in this way. Mary and Joseph, of course, we have heard they were described that way. Elizabeth and Zacharias certainly would be described that way. But most of the nation of Israel had turned their backs on God. They were not people who, who worshipped God as God had declared He to be worshipped. They had turned the law into a way for them to justify themselves, for them to be declared righteous by their efforts more than trusting in God at all, even though God had always declared that they must come to Him by faith. That is always how it's been in the Old Testament, and it's always how it is through the New Testament, as we'll see tonight. And now here is Simeon. He's, he's one of these individuals. And remember, we said that no one has that title righteous without it being a declaration given upon them by God. There's only one way to be righteous before God. It is by faith alone. It's not by efforts. It is not by works. It didn't start that way in the garden. It has always been by faith in what God has said, and it will always be that way. And here is Simeon, a man of faith. Zacharias and Elizabeth, back in chapter 1, were people of faith. Mary and Joseph were people of faith. I just want to show us this for a minute so that we're not 
confused at all about this idea being throughout the scriptures. Let's take us on a on a quick little scriptural survey, if you will. Genesis chapter 6, we'll just begin there. Genesis chapter 6. Right, the corruption of mankind is at the height, right? When they begin to multiply in the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, right? The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is of flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. If you want to know why longevity never goes past that in our world, there it is right there. God said man's not going to live past that. In fact, I think the oldest person on the earth who just recently died was 115 or something. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those who were mighty men of old, men of renown, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out a man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a what? Righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. Not because Noah did everything right. Not because Noah's efforts on earth were always in honor of God, certainly that's not the case, but because he believed God. Noah walked with God, it says in verse 9. Walked with God. It was by faith that Noah was a righteous man. Go over to Job. Job. Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. There's the characteristic of Job. Job was a blameless, upright man. Why? Because he feared God, and because he feared God, he turned away from evil. Over to Daniel. Daniel. You see the same thing. Daniel 6. Daniel 6 and verse 22 says this, when Daniel was speaking to the king, king lived forever, right? Daniel had gotten thrown into the lion's den because he would not obey the edict by the king of the land to worship the king. Daniel said, I'm going to worship the God, my God, not, not some foreign object that you want us to. Of course, they throw him into the lion's den. Daniel was certainly preserved by God. God says, Daniel says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was what? Found innocent before him. I was found innocent. Why? Because I constantly serve him. I constantly serve the Lord my God. I have a fear of God and therefore I do what God asks. I believe what God says. God has counted me righteous, counted me as one who is innocent before him. Verse 23 says, The king was very pleased, gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken out, out, out of the den. No injuries whatsoever found him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. 
Faith. Faith. Of course, Micah 6, verse 8 is a verse we go to quite often. Micah says to Israel, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk in fear of your God. Walk circumspectly before God. Trust what God says. Do what God has said. Fear thy name. Fear God. And then, of course, when you get to the New Testament, go over to Acts. Acts chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10, verse 2. Verse Peter has come, or Peter is about to come, right? There's a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man. There's the same term used for for Simeon. He's a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So here is a Gentile, not simply a Jew. He's a Gentile who fears God, who worships God, who honors God, who trusts God in his own heart and his own mind. Verse 22 of that same chapter, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, talking of Peter, to come to his house and to hear a message from you. So here is this righteous Gentile. Acts 24 Acts 24, verse 16, a similar truth. This is the Apostle Paul declaring his testimony before Felix. He says in verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and men. Paul says, listen, I... I live in such a way circumspectly. I live in such a way. If you read his testimony, I live in fear and honor of God. I trust what God says. I believe God. I believe what God says. One last passage. Turn over to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Because I think this is Probably the most striking of them all. Titus chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who himself, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now there's both sides of it. People of God who trust what God has said, and thereby, because they trust what God said, they live according to the words of God with anticipation in Jesus Christ, looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so when you go back to Luke chapter 2, or even the beginning chapters of Luke, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, they're all those kinds of people. And now we have this third testimony of Simeon, a righteous man, not because of himself, but because he believed what God had said. That comes even more clear in this passage by what he says about God and what God said to him. Notice what he says, now, Lord you can let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen 
your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all his people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You are my Lord. I'm just your servant. I know you are the one who gives salvation. This salvation is a a light of, of revelation to all people, to the Gentiles. He's the glory of your people, Israel. This is Simeon the believer. Simeon the believer. So notice we are also introduced here in this passage to a fourth witness. To a fourth witness. Begins in verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all of those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The text says she was 84 years old. There is some dispute as to what the original language is actually saying there. Several commentators believe that what the text means in the original language is that she was a widow for 84 years. That is not how the New American Standard translates that passage. But if that is the case, then here is Anna at the time of Mary and Joseph coming to the temple, and she's around 103 to 105 years old. She is one older woman. I'm not sure how different the point is if she's 20 more years down the road than being 84 or being 104. I'm not so sure that makes any difference as to the reality of this because what we're pointing out and I think what Luke is just driving at is here is this person who has been walking with God for a lot of years, trusting in what God says, and she is there trusting in the promise that God had made about the Savior. She had been, as verse 38 says, looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's one of those. So here is both Anna and Simeon, examples to each and every one of us of faithful, righteous believers. Faithful, righteous people living in a day when many are not following God at all. Living out what God said, trusting God, even though many We're pushing it aside and not believing it anymore. Now think about that for a moment, because even after the death of Jesus Christ, even after Jesus dies in Jerusalem, the few short days after that, only 120 people gather together in the room together. 120 out of millions, potentially, that saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that knew of what the prophets said because the Old Testament prophets were spoken about in the synagogue on a regular basis. They knew what Isaiah had said. They knew what the Old Testament prophets had said. And yet here they see Jesus who had claimed to be God crucified and only 120 seemingly are gathered. Here is Simeon and Anna, both examples of those who followed the truth of God as God had given it. They believed God. Simeon is called righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. Anna, notice, she's not called righteous, but she is one who did not depart from the temple. She worshiped God day and night with fasting and prayer. She certainly was reflecting a righteous and devout life. And both of them are expectantly waiting the coming of the Messiah. In fact, the word that describes Simeon in verse 25, this man of Jerusalem being righteous and devout, 
looking for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is a is an interesting word in the original language. It's nacham. It, it it's it's the word that we've heard before in the old Israeli prime minister Menachem Begin. It's nacham. It means comfort, comfort. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 40, verse 1, and Isaiah 66, 13, use the word comfort. Comfort. In fact, here's what it says in Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Simeon is described here as one who is waiting for that comfort. He is waiting for the comfort of Israel to come. The one who would set everything straight. The one who all would see and all could believe and all would see the great salvation of God. Simeon's waiting on the comfort of God to come to his people. This is what Simeon believed. Simeon read the Old Testament prophets. Simeon heard the Old Testament prophets speak. And when they spoke, Simeon said, God is saying that. That's God saying that. Simeon believed. And we know that he was righteous and devout in his character. Why? Because he has been declared righteous. He has been declared righteous by God speaking it here through Luke, and we know he can only be righteous if he trusted God by faith. He believed the Old Testament. He believed what God had said to Abraham. He believed that through Abraham, all who believed would be blessed. He believed that That blessing would come through God sending His Messiah. And so, because he believed that, Simeon went about his life devoutly living in anticipation of that coming. And the text here says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. That's interesting, isn't it? The Holy Spirit was upon him. He was a believer, and the Holy Spirit was Upon him, it says. The Holy Spirit wasn't in him. The text is specific. It was upon him. It's a different word. Why? Why? Why upon him? Because prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's how the Spirit worked in the life of believers. The Spirit didn't indwell. The Spirit was upon those who believed, and normally when He came upon them, it was for the speaking of God, for the formal proclamation of the revelation of God, to give direct revelation to the people. And this, of course, is what we see with Simeon, beginning in verse 29 through 32. There is revelation from God. We know it's revelation from God. It's included in the canon of Scripture. It's included in God's Word. And so the Holy Spirit is upon him. He's an Old Testament believer. We know that in the New Testament, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell the believers. Jesus promised that. That the Spirit would come and He would lead us into all truth. And we see that happening in the book of Acts. We see that transition taking place in the hearts of the Jewish people and then in the hearts of the Gentiles in order to show the Jewish people that God wasn't just for them, that He was for all people. And of course, 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit was at work in all of the ones who wrote the Scriptures, that He was carrying them along 
as they were writing the Word of God. So here is Simeon. He is waiting on the coming Comforter, and the Spirit of God is directing him. Notice, notice the revelation that he gets. Verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. I'm sorry, verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It had been revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. When I read that, I just went, wow. Wow. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Wake up tomorrow. God's voice in your ears in some miraculous way. You will not die until you see A, B, C, or D. Simeon got to know the exact timing of his death. Now, I don't know if that was a blessing or a curse, frankly. None of us have had that. I'm not so sure I'd want that, now that I think about it. Simeon was told. I believe that shows another reality about his devoutness before God. I think many today would like to know, and yet if we knew, we'd live sinfully, as sinfully as we could until the day was coming, until we knew the day, and we'd live sinfully up to that point and say, well, I'll I'll get ready on the final moment. If I know I'm not going to die until this date, then I'll get ready right at the last minute. I'll get all my wild oats in while I can. I'll believe God at the last moment. That wasn't Simeon. He had been told And he lives devoutly and righteously before God. Now the text doesn't tell us how long he had known this. doesn't give us that fact. We don't know. Could have been a long time. Here he is knowing that he will not die until he sees God's Messiah. I don't know if he knew that for one year, one day, one hour, 12 years. He doesn't know exactly who the Messiah is. He doesn't, he hasn't been told, at least the text doesn't tell us that he was told it'll be this little baby who comes with these two people and they're going to come to the temple. So go to the temple on this day and you'll see the Lord's Messiah that day. He doesn't told any of that stuff. He just is told, listen, you're not going to die. You're not going to see death before you see the Lord's Christ. He he surely was praying to God constantly in his heart, Lord, bring the Messiah. Lord, bring the Messiah. I'm waiting for the Messiah. Please bring salvation to Israel. And God tells him, you're not going to die until you see it. The text says in verse 27, so he comes in the spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, they didn't know anything about Simeon. They're just there doing what God had called them to do. They're paying the temple tax for Jesus. Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God. And he said, Now, Lord, you can let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation. Who's who's the salvation of God? It is verse 26. It is the Lord's Christ, right? The Holy Spirit said to him, you will not see death before you see the Lord's Christ. That's the salvation. It's God's Messiah. It's not man's Messiah. It's not man-made Messiah. It's not somebody else who's going to lead you into glory. It's the Lord's Christ. It's His Messiah. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. You brought Him to this place. You brought Him in this fashion. You you came to earth. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. It will open their eyes and the glory of your people Israel. What a proclamation. Here is this righteous, devout man. He's at the temple to worship the Lord as he has done time and time and time again. He's following the prompting of the Holy Spirit upon him and in comes Mary and Joseph. And innately, somehow, in some way, he knows who it is. 
They're there just to carry out the custom of the law, and Simeon sees them. He takes the baby in his arms, and he begins to bless God. What a proclamation. This is your salvation. I've seen it. I've trusted it for years, Lord. You've let me see it. You promised I wouldn't die. I can die now. I can die now. I'm okay. We've seen him. We've heard Simeon. We've heard what he believed. Now we hear what he declares about Jesus Christ. What a coincidence this is. What a coincidence. Simeon just happens to be in the temple on the day that Mary and Joseph bring Jesus. Just happens to be there. Whoops. No. No, God is orchestrating all of this. God is orchestrating every detail so that Mary and Joseph would hear his words about their son so that the words of God to Simeon are at the same time completely fulfilled. He holds the baby Jesus and he begins to praise God. Now, now let's just pause and think about that for a minute. Here is Simeon, long waiting for the Messiah to come, and now it's happened. Now it's happened. The Comforter has come. He is holding the Comforter of Israel in the arms of himself, and he is being allowed to do that by the parents who don't know him from Adam. And Simeon is so secure in the presence of God that he is experiencing a profound peace in his soul. Simeon knows who this is. Simeon is in the presence of God incarnate. And Simeon says, it's okay. I'm ready to go. Take me, Lord. No worries. No issues. Simeon is at full peace. Even even with the understanding that now he can see death. Why? Why? Because he believes what God said. He has believed what God has said. He believes in God's salvation. And now here he is looking into the eyes of the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Glory, the very one whom the angel declared to the shepherds. And he says, right now, Lord, right now I can die. Just take me. Your Messiah has come according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation What my faith eyes saw all along, now my physical eyes see. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, Jesus Christ is full salvation. Jesus Christ is full salvation. He's not a a part of salvation. He's not a piece that you have to attach to the mosaic of something called salvation in which you need all to do all of these kinds of things in order that you might be justified before God. No, Jesus Christ is salvation. Listen, Theophilus, remember? Luke's writing, listen, Theophilus, all that you've been told about the coming of the Messiah, all that you've been told about this one, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sufficient one. He is all you need. There's a lesson there, beloved, for us. There is something there we must remember. We have to have it in our minds that true peace only comes when we, like Simeon, understand and believe that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. That he is sufficient for all our sin. We rest our souls in him alone. We rest there. Simeon says this is salvation for all who would believe. He's a light to the Gentiles. He's the glory of the Jews. Salvation would come to all who would believe. 
all who would believe. Both Jew and Gentile alike, Jesus Christ is the answer. All who would believe, he will no wise cast out. That's what Jesus says. Surely Simeon would have had a difficult time taking his eyes off of Jesus, wouldn't he? Surely Mary's probably going, um, can I have the baby back? He's like, really? I don't, want, I don't want to let him go. He's been filled with the greatest joy of his life. He turns to the earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. They stand there in amazement, right? His father and mother, verse 33, were amazed at these things that he were saying about him. They're standing there with their jaws on the ground, shocked beyond measure at what they are hearing. And he says to them, verse 34 and 35, Simeon, bless them. And he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. By the way, that word opposed is a, is a statement in the original language that means continually to be opposed. Not just opposed by a few people, but continually to be opposed, which is what we see. And it be a sword. This sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is what Jesus has come to do. Those are words not just for Mary and Joseph. Those are words for all of us. Even as the very soul of Mary herself is pierced, she would know great sorrow physically concerning her son as he is rejected by many. He's crucified before her very eyes. But she would know the piercing of her own soul because of her own sinfulness. The reality of salvation being only through her son. Simeon says this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. That's certainly true of all who come to Christ, isn't it? Come face to face with Jesus Christ. We are brought down in humiliation. We are brought down in a humble state like Micah 6.8 says. We are brought down before Christ because of sin. And yet by God's grace and mercy as we believe, we are raised to new life by faith. People truly encounter Jesus Christ. The thoughts and intentions of their heart are exposed. The living word And apart from God's gracious intervention and quickening of them unto repentance, they'll just continue to reject. God has to do a merciful work. All men are unable and unwilling to face the truth about who they are before God. They reject it. They suppress it, as Romans 1 says, in their own unrighteousness. All of us naturally oppose Jesus Christ, and we oppose not the man Jesus Christ, we oppose what he did on the cross. We think it's not satisfactory. All of the false religions of the world that acknowledge Jesus Christ at all, all add something to Jesus Christ, and they make what He did on the cross insufficient to save anybody. It's only in true Christianity where salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, God opens our eyes and we fall before Him in humiliation so that we can receive Him, by His grace, He raises us to new life in His Son. Luke says, Mary, Joseph, they're righteous testimonies of who Jesus Christ is. Simeon's a righteous testimony of who Jesus Christ is. And then there's Anna, the prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, tribe of Asher. Not the tribe of Judah, not one of the Levites. This is the tribe of Asher. One of the lost tribes, as some try to say. Lost ten tribes of Israel during the, when they got set, when they got besieged. This is the tribe of Asher. She's advanced in years. 
She had been faithful to her marriage. In her marriage, she had only by God's grace been married seven years. And then somehow her husband was died of something, some way. We're not told. She's a widow. And she's a widow either for 84 years or at least up to the age of 84. She's been a widow a long, long time. And yet here she is ministering and serving in the church. She's a faithful Israelite woman. She loves God. She believes God. And she too is waiting for the redemption of God's people. The text doesn't specifically tell us, but we can conclude that by both her actions and her words to others, she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, right? Because it says in verse 38, and she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, others were identified, at least in her mind, by that reality, which means she talked to other people about that very reality. There were others, maybe some of those 120, who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, just like Simeon, certainly her and Simeon would have talked when Simeon would have come to the temple to worship God. Talking about the promises of God, what the Old Testament prophets said, there was a remnant who had believed. There was a remnant who had trusted that God would send a deliverer, and Anna faithfully prayed and fasted for years looking for that day that he would come. In comes Mary and Joseph. Simeon has blessed God for this child, and Anna just spontaneously responds in the same way. She gave praise to God. She began giving thanks to God, verse 38 says. She continued to speak of Him, who? The Lord's Christ, the salvation of God. She continued to speak of Him, this little baby who is the God incarnate to all people who were looking for that. She began to tell the others that she knew who were looking for the redemption of Jews. I found Him. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. She gave praise to God. The word in the original language here for give thanks, verse 38, means that she continued to give thanks. She didn't stop giving thanks. She was continually giving thanks. That's what she did. She thanked God for this child and for everything in her life. Well, that's evidence, isn't it? That's evidence of someone who's truly righteous, That's what the Scriptures tell us to be, thankful in all things. Thankful in all things. This is Anna. She's thankful, worshipful, faithful, righteous, just like Simeon. Luke ends this this text with these words. And when they had performed everything according to the law, verse 39, to the law of the Lord, They returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and in the grace of God. And the grace of God was upon him. Now, if you know the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, something seems to be missing here. Because when you go to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, Joseph was told in a dream that he needed to flee to Egypt. He needed to go to Egypt because Herod was threatening to find who this king was. Luke doesn't give us those details. He simply says, and when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. That's all we know of the childhood of Jesus Christ, other than the next text, verse 41 through 52, where Jesus goes with them. He's 12 years old. All we know of the childhood life up to age 12 of Jesus is right here in verse 39 and 40. So what can we conclude from Luke's words? 
Simply this, Jesus is salvation. Theophilus, I want you to know I'm writing this down with, 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 with strict uh, adherence to all that happened so that you might know the exact truth. Theophilus, this is the exact truth. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the Lord's Christ. Jesus is the salvation of God. Jesus is the revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus is the glory of the people of Israel. He is the deliverer of all who will believe. He comes to the needy, those who acknowledge their sin, and embrace Him by faith. They're the ones who have an eternal hope. Jesus Christ is the whole of salvation. He's the whole of salvation. He's not a part. And you and I come to new life only as He aggressively brings us to the end of ourselves. Jesus drags us to Himself and He gives us new life in Him. There is no other way. Now tonight, we're going to go to Galatians because we're in Galatians and it happens to be similar in parallel to this reality of faith alone. We're going to look at Abraham, the life of Abraham, and how Abraham got saved. This was a problem for the Jews in fact, you see it even here in Luke chapter 3. As John the Baptist preaches, and he says in verse 7, you multitudes who are going out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruits keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, because we are physical children of Abraham, listen, we are good with God. God is good with us. Why? Because I say to you, John the Baptist says, I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. John the Baptist is saying the same thing Jesus said. He's saying the same thing that Paul was preaching. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Simeon believed that. Mary and Joseph believe that. Anna believed that. The remnant of Israel has believed that. And a multitude of others throughout the ages have believed that. And we sit here this day only because God has given us faith to believe that. There is no other way. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you, by your grace, have overcome our sin. That we do not make ourselves righteous, that we do not declare ourselves in a justifying way to be righteous. We cannot do that in acceptance to you. Only you can declare that. And the only means through which you declare that is the righteousness of your Son. Jesus Christ, the God-man. We believe, we believe what you said. We believe, even though our eyes have never seen in a physical way these things, we know your word is true. You have opened our eyes to believe. And so we walk by faith. We trust you. We desire to obey you, live for you. Seek after you in all things. To be anxious for nothing. To be like Simeon and Mary and Joseph and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Anna. Be like those who have gone before us in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and who trusted you even though they never received anything physically on this earth. We trust you for a better home. We serve you here with our eyes fixed on the coming again of our Savior Jesus Christ in whom we have our hope. 
Lord, help us to serve you with diligence, honor, thanksgiving. Help us to serve one another because you have served us so richly. Help us to not be anxious about anything because we have a secure hope in Christ. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for allowing us to be here this day that we could glorify your name together. And for those who weren't able to be here, Lord, we pray that they are able to do the same thing. Honor your name. Bring us back safely tonight. All to your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.